Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 182 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday night. It's October 21st, 2020. Halloween's coming. So is the election. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I mean, it's not coming, Bobby, that you know, millions of people, including yours truly, have already voted. Yeah, I've done it. Um, we have had in Travis County, uh, I don't know how today's numbers turned out, but I believe that we've had an average of what, like 30 something thousand per day? No, so the, the statistic I saw yesterday, day? which did not include today's totals, was that 33% of registered voters in Travis County have already voted. Um, you talk about the fact that the registration rate in Travis County right, is like 97%? You're like, wait, what? I mean, that's great. Could that possibly be true? That sounds like some stat from uh, Belarusia or something. Uh, so we've got this huge surge in registrations. We have a yep. huge surge in early voting. Fascinating. It's, it's um, almost so, like so, the upcoming debate won't uh, won't affect a lot of people's votes. So there, there are, uh, the Texas Tribune, which I, I just want to plug as a fantastic journalistic mm-hmm. resource. Yeah. Um, the, the Texas Tribune. Um, has a great compilation of early voting statistics. I think Bobby from like Texas's ten biggest counties, and in almost all of them, you know, even by yesterday, not including today, the counties had already hit their early voting totals, their early voting turnout totals for 2016 and 2018. I think um, 16, I think, being the better comparator because it was a presidential. Um, the crazy statistic, I mean, Houston, Harris County, like the numbers there are just off the charts, and so. You know, the million dollar question is, is this is this just, you know, the same people who voted last time just voting earlier? Or is this a sign that turnout's actually going to be up significantly across our state? I think it's definitely going to be the latter, although I don't know how the split of that additional right. voting is going to be. Uh, I, I don't think it's obvious it'll be. Dr- I imagine it leans a little Democratic, but I don't know it leans a lot. But uh, some polls are saying that Texas is definitely in play for for the White House even if not for other elections, although with a crazy flood of money to MJ Hager, the Democratic candidate running against John Cornyn that's arrived over the the past week, suddenly you cannot turn a TV on in Texas without a, and I mean, constant stream of of Hager commercials. So that race may end up being pretty close, although I still suspect, I'll go out on a limb. Friends, are you ready? I'm, I'm calling Texas. Joe Biden's going to take Texas, but but John Cornyn is going to win his seat too, because we no longer have, for the first time, at least in my memory, we no longer have straight ticket voting, which is what so many people did. I think they're going to be, the story of Texas will be that we have a lot of ticket splitters. Prediction. And, and, the, and the irony is that the reason why we don't have straight ticket voting anymore is because the Republican legislature got rid of it because they thought that it would make it would it would t- make it take longer to vote in jurisdictions that were more heavily Democratic, like Harris County. So good times. Um, I don't know. I don't. That may be. I don't know. But I do know that probably every down ballot. I don't. I don't know about this, but the down ballot Republicans are going to benefit this election. I think from the lack of straight ticket voting. A little bit, because I think there's going to be. Some, I'm, I'm predicting there's a there's a chunk of usual Republican voters who who want the John Cornyns, John Cornyns, etc. But they will not pull the trigger for this madness anymore at the top of the ticket. I hope that's true. I mean, it would certainly make election night go quickly if because you know Texas is probably unlike say Pennsylvania or Florida, Texas Texas law. Um, one, does not allow for late arriving absentee ballots, but two, allows the state to actually count early votes and absentee votes, um, I think starting, Bobby, the day before the election. Yeah, what a sensible uh, rule. Um, and so, you know, the, there's a good bet that we'll know the result in Texas, you know, election night. And man, if I mean, it, it's not hard to imagine a world where a couple of those states are too close to call because of the number of outstanding ballots. And if Texas does, in fact, go to Biden, that becomes the, it, the it nail becomes, in the coffin. Yeah. Te- that Texas could be what enables the nation to rest easy uh, in terms of not having a man. That would be something horrifically ugly thing. So you heard it here first. That's my man, prediction. Just feed that, feed, f- inject that, inject that optimism right into my veins, please, because I am, <laughs> you know, especially with the. Well, I mean, I, I am so nervous and worried, and you know, Supreme Court decisions like the one we just got in Alabama don't make me feel much better. So. 
Well, speaking of what we're going to talk about tonight, so this will be a short episode. We're going to talk about um, we're going to journey to Scotuslandia. Uh oh, you said this is going to be a short episode. That's that. Every time you say that, yeah. it ends up not being one. That's true. No, this has got to be because we're both worn out. Um, and by the way, we should probably say, as you know, I always apologize for these delayed episodes. You say don't apologize. We're not promising weekly episodes. I know. I just feel bad. Um, so tonight we're going to talk about uh, some SCOTUS stuff, including your argument last week in Brig. So I want to I want to hear all about it, and then and then we're going to see a little bit of insight into what's going on with this eight member court that we've currently got, and what's happening in election related developments. Um, but we have some core national security stuff too. We'll do uh, a check in with uh, a trio of Justice Department activities. Uh, really interesting array of things we've got uh, indictments of Russian. Military officers, we've got conspiracies, uh, terrorism conspiracies in a Beaumont prison, uh, and we've got and we've got websites being seized because they've been uh, they're being used by uh, Iran's proxy group in Iraq, Kateb Hezbollah. It's it's pretty wild stuff. Not a ton to say about them other to, than to observe these things are happening and maybe say a few words about their legal aspects. Although I don't see a lot of likely grounds for us to debate back and forth much, but that'll be enough to get us to the real main event, Steve. The main event tonight, of course, is our promised frivolity segment on the greatness that is Tom Berenger movies. So yes, we will conclude with some of the best, some of the worst. Tom Listen, as long as, I mean, Tom Berenger, if we're going to talk about one, you know, over the hill white guy, better that it be Tom Berenger than the other two white men who are not having good weeks when it comes to their time on film or I'm, I'm Zoom. I'm so completely mystified by the turn towards towards that description. Who, who do you have in mind? You know who I have in mind. All, all I can say is Jeff Tubin should send... No, no, we're, this is very unfrivolous, but Jeff Tubin should send Rudy Giuliani a big fat check. <laughs> I figured, I figured uh, Rudy's troubles and perhaps Jeff's were, were bound to uh, dare I say surface here? Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I, I think we should just. I, I think that should be the last time we mention either of them because we're going to say something that we're going to completely regret, and it's just it's oh, going to be I'm bad. It. All right, so let's uh, let's start off in the Supreme Court. It's yeah, Gordon Land, why not? And you were done, done. virtually there, having just done your Texas Supreme Court argument. Um, you had your your sort of uh, semi virtual, almost could see them, but couldn't see them, could just listen to them experience. So first, before we talk about the, the merits and all the rest about uh, Briggs, can you just tell us, like, what was it like to actually, what was it just like a teleconference? Yeah, it was weird. It was like a conference call. I mean, this um, was 1980s. It was very 1980s. And, and there's just the, you know, I can't fully describe the surreality and the awkwardness, Bobby, of sitting in basically a small conference room and like by yourself talking into a speakerphone and like conduct doing an oral argument with like the disembodied you know voices of eight Supreme Court justices. It's just weird. So you were down at McGinnis Lockridge, right? I was. So uh, April awesome. Lucas um, and her friends at McGinnis Lockridge were kind enough to lend me a landline. And I mean, it's just, it's weird because like, I'm literally sitting in front of a speakerphone and like talking into the speakerphone and it's just a phone. Oh my God. So did you have any trouble uh, placing which justice was speaking at any given time or was it always clear? It's always clear because they go in order. Um, and so, you know, you know, you know, oh, whose turn it is. Here? Yeah. So, so they each go, you know, one at a time, although Justice Sotomayor passed. Um, when she got to me, um, which I she thought was so persuaded by your brief that there was no need to ask questions. I, I actually have a slightly different theory, which is I actually think that she passed to give me more time to close. Um, um, but which, you know, which and so I, I ended up having like three full minutes at the end of the at the end of Justice um, Kavanaugh's questions um, to actually like get in a full proper closing, which was nice. Um, yeah, so who uh, which of the justices, if any, surprised you? Um, in, in terms of how they seem to be approaching your issues? Or was it all about what you expected? Um, you know, I, I don't want to sort of spend like half an hour relitigating the sort of the details of the case. It really is a very sort of complex statute, uh, statutory interpretation case. Um, and so I guess in that vein, I was a bit surprised by Justice Gorsuch. 
um, who, you know, I think, as we saw as recently as last term in the Title VII LGBT discrimination case, really does, you know, put his textualism sometimes in front of in front of what we assume are his politics. Um, he didn't seem to be especially um, enamored of the textual arguments in our case. He seemed to be much more interested in some of the sort of broader prudential considerations, which seemed at least slightly out of character for him. Um, I actually thought just about everybody else was true to form, um, including Justice Alito asking me about, um, you know, our, our, Congress wouldn't, Congress would have wanted a statute of women. Congress would never have thought that, like, we'd want to execute soldiers who go on a rape spree in occupied Austria. Like, that was basically his question. That was the hypo you got? Yeah. Well, and I, I, but I, I was ready for that hypo. And indeed, I, I had expected a similar hypo from him. So it worked out well. Uh huh. Now, we should probably, even though longtime listeners have heard about Briggs before, can you just sort of give us the pithy version of the question presented? Yeah, so the elevator pitch. So um, these are basically, um, the question is from 1986 to 2006, was rape in the military subject to a five-year statute of limitations or no statute of limitations? And the answer to that question turns entirely on whether rape was, quote, punishable by death, unquote, during that period. Um, it, the death penalty was authorized for rape in the military, but then you also had the Supreme Court and military court saying that the Eighth Amendment forbade its imposition. And so the central question in Briggs is, does punishable by death mean Congress has authorized the death penalty, or does punishable by death mean the death penalty is actually a possible sentence um, for the offense? And that's, you know, if it's the latter, we win. If it's the former, well, we lose. All right. So we will all be watching. And uh, do you have but, any... I, yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. You're going to ask. You're going to say something. I cut you off. I, I was just kind of rapping, but it, no, no. I mean, I just, I just, it's just the the. I, I just have to say, like the, you know, this was. I was lucky enough that this was my third argument um, in the court, and it's just the experience of doing it, you know, in person really colors just how different I think it is to argue by phone. Like when you can't see their reactions, when you know they're all asking questions, and so you can't tell. Like, are they asking questions because it's actually really important? Or are they asking questions because it's their turn and they have to yeah. ask questions? Yeah, right. That that does seem you know a pale. Like everything else, and, and with remote teaching, we're all learning the same thing. It's just and and, 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 and and this may be a segue to sort of you know talking about the court and the election for a couple of minutes. But um, the other thing is, you know, I, there's a scenario that I could imagine, given how the argument went, Bobby, where the court splits four to four. Um, in our case. And and it's an interesting question at that point whether they would set the case for re-argument right. um, sometime later this term, in which case I'd get to do this all again, um, or whether they would just, you know, 4-4, four, you know, four, four, they could just hand down a decision that affirms by an equally divided court. Um, they could. So, and it, so this, I can imagine some listeners who don't follow the history of how stuff goes down are kind of wondering, when, when there's a new justice who drops in during a term when there's cases have been argued but have not been decided, what's sort of the default most common practice? Is it just relist everything? Uh, do they ever get to do they ever get to vote if they weren't present for the oral argument? What, what are sort of the norms of behavior here? Yeah, so norms is the right word, Bobby, because none of this is formalized. Um, so the short, short version, and we should we should add the you know the soon to be Justice Barrett to this conversation, is that the the norm has consistently been that justices can vote on anything that comes to the court after they're on the court. Um, but that does not include cases that were already argued and voted on. Um, so to make sort of a long story short, you know, assuming the timeline where I think the Judiciary Committee is going to vote on Friday on, on the nomination of Judge Barrett, and I think the full Senate may vote as early as Monday, you know, uh, soon-to-be Justice Barrett will be there in time to vote on November cases and perhaps stay applications that reach the court next week, but not anything to this point, including the 10 cases that were argued the first two weeks of October. So, you know, not all 10 of those cases, Bobby, are going to be 4-4. Maybe most of them won't be, in which case it won't matter. But if there are a couple that are 4-4 without, you know, Judge Barrett, soon to be Justice Barrett, um, then the court has the choice of setting the case for re-argument or just dumping it. And I think, you know, it wouldn't shock me. I, I don't know if Briggs is going to be it, but it wouldn't shock me if there's at least one or two cases that get one of those outcomes from the from the October argument. Oh boy, we are we are in for quite a ride. 
Well, so and so, so that might be a good place to segue to the election stuff. So, so you know, I, I, the Supreme Court has been in the headlines last week and this week, not because of Briggs. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Alas, no. Uh, no, I'm fine with that. Um, but much more because of a bunch of these election cases. And so I thought it might be, even though it's not a pure national security issue, I thought maybe we take just a minute or two to talk about what's going on and what the court's role is. Absolutely. We've, and, and I think uh, it's important for people to understand sort of in the, in the general course of things, we tend to focus on the Supreme Court because there is some decision, usually court Circuit Court of Appeals decision that's you know, something that's been litigated for a while, and then there's cert petitions, the cert petition's granted, if it gets set for argument, that's not the only way issues end up before the court, as you know better than most. So uh, uh, yeah, more and more we're going to most of this is going to end up over the next, whatever it is that's now showing up there and what's going to show up there, what's this other pathway that's really the pathway? So I think I think it's I think the best thing to do, Bobby, is to break election cases into three categories, um, just to sort of keep them analytically separate. So there's the sort of before election day category, which is fighting over who and how you know who votes and how, um, right? There's the election day itself category, which is really usually just the last minute keeping the polls open an extra forty five minutes because a machine broke down, yeah. kind of thing. Those cases almost never get to the Supreme Court. Um, it's not yeah. That's right. And then there's the post-election day stuff. And that I that to me is the real um, scary nightmare scenario That's where Bush v. Gore type cases. Exactly. Where 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 you're at where, where the votes have been cast and you're just fighting over which ones are going to be counted. Um, so what we've seen thus far is just, you know, almost entirely litigation over um, different forms of non-in-person voting. So, for example, um, there the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had held that Pennsylvania will count, um, that Pennsylvania law allows for the counting of absentee ballots received as late as three days after the election, as long as they were either postmarked by Election Day Bobby or have no postmark or a um, illegible postmark. Um, and this this was challenged um, two different sets of, of litigants, the Pennsylvania Republican Party and a couple of Pennsylvania state legislators asked the Supreme Court to stay the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision, not to reverse it, but just to put it on hold, which would have the effect right, of reversing it because the election is nigh. Um, and the Supreme Court a couple nights ago, by a four to four vote, um, said no. So with Chief Justice Roberts actually joining the lefties, um, the court refused to stay the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision. Of course, that leaves open the possibility that like, so now Pennsylvania is going to count these votes. Um, if Pennsylvania is super close, could Trump turn around and say those votes actually shouldn't have been counted after the election? Yeah, the Supreme Court denying a stay does not preclude it right, right from revisiting this issue. Right. Question, what is the... What's the federal question that would have justified Supreme Court involvement in this in this seemingly Pennsylvania state law matter? So the the applicants identified three federal questions. Um, the first was that the Pennsylvania decision contrasted and conflicted with federal statutory law on when the election actually is. That by allowing late arriving ballots to be counted, that was basically a violation of you know election day is Tuesday, November third. Um, but then there were two much bigger and much more significant constitutional claims, one arising under the elections clause of Article 1, one arising under the electors clause of Article 2, about the relative authority of the Pennsylvania legislature, Bobby, versus the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Um, and that those two questions, the sort of the state legislature versus state Supreme Court stuff, that really harkens back to Bush versus Gore. Um, and that's where I think, you know, there's a lot of concern that if the court reaches the merits in these cases, it's not hard to imagine, you know, a, a sort of a scenario where a state Supreme Court decision that had opened the door to more voting would be thrown out in favor of objections from a state legislature. So that's, you know, we're not there yet. Um, and so like tonight's decision where we had a 5-3 court issue a stay of a federal district court injunction in Alabama, where the effect of the stay is basically to put back into effect Alabama's ban on curbside voting. Like that to me, I have problems with that decision, but it's not going to like totally mess up the election. Whereas, you know, Pennsylvania is the tipping point. And if we're fighting over whether, let's say 25,000 ballots, right, that come in, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday after the election should or should not be counted. I mean, that's, that's, that's just a nightmare. So, 
uh, so Roberts is the difference in these two. Scenarios. Yes. And, and so, so you see sort of a, well, look, they're different cases, different legal issues, not too shocking that he felt one way in one, a different way in the other. Is it, so is it as simple as that? Jonathan Adler has a theory that I think is too simple, but that's at least so far descriptively accurate. So Jonathan Adler, our, our friend who teaches at Case Western Reserve, um, his theory is that the chief um, will, will feels no need to defer to federal district courts, but will defer to state supreme courts. And that, you know, at least with Pennsylvania and Alabama, that descriptively holds up, right? That in Pennsylvania, he was asked to put aside the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision in Alabama, it was a federal district court. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a normative justification for that, which is, you know, the Supreme Court has a different relationship with the lower federal courts than it has with state courts. For sure. Um, right. With the lower federal courts, it has plenary supervisory authority, whereas with state Supreme Courts, it has a more limited role. Um, I, I think if we go back in time, that distinction actually doesn't hold up, but at least to explain his behavior over the last week or two, it, you know, it's pretty good. Here's the thing, though, Bobby, right? As early as next Monday, the chief may no longer be the median vote, um, right? That, you know, once once Judge Barrett is confirmed, all of a sudden, you know, I suspect the median vote on these issues, if there is one, um, you know, maybe Justice Kavanaugh. Yeah, that's so interesting. It sounds, I, I can imagine circumstances where it's Gorsuch uh, as a, in some ways, a methodologically more idiosyncratic and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, just having a more particularized, um, some abstract commitments that maybe aren't as characteristic for some of the others. Um, and so it'll be sort of a mix, might be issue dependent. But yeah, you're right that the chiefs, the, the period in which this is very much the chief's court, maybe is about to come to an end. And oh, yeah. we're looking at one of the swan song performances there. Oh, no, I, I think I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Pennsylvania 4 4 orders. Are, are probably going to be the last time for a while where the chief is the cast the decisive vote in a high profile case. One wild card in it is there's as long as the numbers are the way they were and the alignments are the way they were, it made a lot of sense, of course, for him to be that pivot player. When it becomes the case that he is not going to be that pivot player, it increases the pressure on, hypothetically speaking, a Brett Kavanaugh, yep. um, Neil Gorsuch. Uh, to, to take positions where it might have been more comfortable knowing that Roberts was going to pay the sort of external cost for sometimes doing the more moderating institutionally oriented thing that's for the good of the long-term country creates a little elbow room for everyone else who's not going to actually change it. Absolutely. When it, when it makes a difference, I won't be surprised if from time to time we see cases where you see one of them moving very much into that position. Just like just like Justice Kennedy created that exact room for the for Roberts. Exactly so. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So. No, no, it's, it is it is, you know, it is so easy to caricature the court, but there really are institutional concerns that may not drive how all nine or eight justices vote in particular cases, but has more than zero impact, especially in cases like this. So, I say all of this just to say that listen, for folks who are nervous about this. You know, the most easy, the easiest thing to do is vote as early as you can and vote as directly as you can. So if you're able to vote in person, vote in person. If, you know, you live in a state where you can vote by mail and track your ballot, track your ballot. I mean, just keep on, you know, don't leave things for the last minute. That is the easiest way to make sure that none of this litigation ends up actually, you know, affecting the result of the election. There you go. All right. So leaving SCOTUS land and journeying to the land of the National Security Division at the Justice Department, let me dun, dun, dun. a trio of interesting things that have, that have happened this week. So on Monday around lunchtime, there was a really widely noted uh, announcement of indictments of six Russian GRU, that's, that's Russian military intelligence officers, uh, associated with uh, the, the, the hacking group uh, made famous especially by Andy Greenberg in his awesome book, Sandworm, A New Era of Cyber War and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most uh, Dangerous Hackers. You guys can't see this. Bob, Bobby has prominently displayed said book over his left shoulder. Well, you know, it's been there since Monday afternoon because this all broke about an hour before my cybersecurity policy and law class. And so I, I had to pull it off the shelf to explain that this is what they needed to go read. Andy's awesome. The book's awesome. And it gives you a very concrete sense of just how incredibly reckless, how um, it's it's not just gross negligence, but how these operators truly didn't care about the the uh, 
uh, collateral effects of the various malware operations they unleashed, most notably, most devastatingly, not pet yet, although plenty of other things. And so uh, DOJ has indicted them on a cluster of Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and wire fraud charges. Nothing especially interesting, I think, about the legal theories. Um, all the interesting aspects here fall under the policy heading. There's a great post from Jack Goldsmith at Lawfare this morning, uh, sort of lashing DOJ for touting this. I would say it was his post. It's analogous to the person who watches a football team and, and the team their team's getting beat or a player's on a team that's getting beat, but they make a great tackle and they celebrate a lot, but the team's losing like badly. And how for sports fans, you know that moment, you've all seen versions of that where you think, ah, you know, we're not winning this. You shouldn't be celebrating. It doesn't look right. It kind of looks embarrassing a little bit. Jack's saying that um, we clearly don't seem to be deterring sufficiently and disrupting sufficiently uh, these subarm conflict, hostile cyber activities. And there's something faintly embarrassing, if not, if not actually bad about indicting and then not having real teeth in terms of uh, the cost imposition on the Russians and others. Um, I, there's something to that. On the other hand, if you imagine that we we have strong attribution and know these guys are doing this and we don't bother to indict, that seems at least as problematic as well. I think when you are aware of illegal activity uh, in general, if, if you have the means and there's no reason, affirmative reason of policy why you shouldn't do it, you, you, ought, to, you ought to charge it. That's their job. Um, it's more that there's a good complaint to be had that we're not effectively using our sanctions power in particular. And of course, we're in no pos position to judge it, but there's reasons to suspect we're not sufficiently using our covert action or other capabilities to fight fire with fire in some sort of proper respect, though maybe we are. Again, we wouldn't necessarily know. So anyways, that's all pretty interesting. And it just continues to stir up this question of how in the world can we, as a rule of law democracy, uh, effectively interact with China and Russia, North Korea and Iran in the cyber domain. Now, next up, the Justice Department announced, I think it was today, maybe yesterday, uh, very interesting development in the case of one Mohammed Ibrahim Ahmed, who's an Ethiopian citizen who was convicted on material support and a receipt of military-style training charges uh, in Southern District of New York back in 2013. So he got a little less than a 10-year sentence for that based on his pre-9-11, indeed, 1996 uh, attendance at an Al-Qaeda-affiliated uh, training camp in Afghanistan in sort of that pre-9-11 period. And then having later, while living in New York, participated in a group that was providing funding and doing other things in the nature of material support for various terrorist groups. So he goes to jail. Um, several years back, and he ends up being sent to Beaumont here in Texas. He's at the Federal Correctional Institute there. Well, while there, he's caught recruiting other prisoners, including guys who are about to get out, uh, in the name of the Islamic State to get out and carry out attacks in the United States once they're out. And then he himself was caught on tape, I guess, um, talking about the attacks he might carry out, including going back to Manhattan and trying to bomb the uh, federal detention center in Manhattan. Uh, so he has now been sentenced to an additional 25 years. So yeah, there you go. No word on those other five guys. That's, a, that's an interesting part of that story as well. Thirdly, the Justice Department today revealed that it had gone to court in Arizona and got a warrant authorizing it to seize a pair of web domains. So it's U.S.-administered, U.S.-provided web domains that were being used for propaganda purposes by Kataib Hezbollah, which is a, one of Iran's proxy uh, organized armed groups operating within Iraq. We've talked about them on the show before in more uh, kinetic context. Um, Kataib Hezbollah is both a foreign terrorist organization as designated by the State Department and uh, a specially designated national under longstanding IEPA sanctions. And uh, the idea is that they should not have been able to acquire these web services within the United States without a license from Treasury's OFAC. Um, nothing, Wait, but, but, but Bobby, hmm. you, you didn't say it right. IEPA. There you go. Sorry. You so go. I, just, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to break up your flow, but I mean, I come had on. A little there was a lilt there, but it wasn't the enthusiastic no, no, lilt. That it, was not, it was not an enthusiastic eep. 
Absolutely. <laughs> that's gotta be, is that the podcast title? It was not this, an this podcast. This podcast is lacking an enthusiastic deep. You gotta write that down. <laughs> I'm writing it down. Surely we'll do better. Tom Berenger Samus. Um, the only thing I'll observe about this is it, it's kind of interesting to observe that it, whenever there's sanctions related enforcement that touches on communications platforms, communications capabilities, there's always a First Amendment issue that lurks in the background. And as we all know from watching the TikTok and WeChat business unfolding over the past uh, several weeks, um, there are circumstances in which courts, if and when there's someone who can actually go into court to litigate, as in the case of WeChat with the First Amendment, as in the case of TikTok with the informational materials uh, scope of IEPA issue, um, sometimes courts are open to those arguments. Here, there's no way Kataib Hezbollah is showing up in court or anyone's going to show up in court on their behalf. So we're not going to see any sort of First amendment or scope of IEPA arguments. But I flag that as just an interesting implication and frankly, something that needs to be borne in mind by the, the, the two unfolding cases with WeChat and TikTok. The WeChat case, I believe, is now on appeal of the preliminary injunction, so interlocutory appeal of that to the Ninth Circuit. And, uh, and that's the First Amendment set of arguments. And then the TikTok case, I don't think it's there yet, but soon will be, I assume, with the D.C. Circuit uh, on a similar type of set of arguments. But this one's about the scope of IEPA. And my point is the courts and the litigants and certainly the Justice Department need to be thinking about how do those arguments apply as to more run of the mill national security threats such as the Islamic State, Qatayb Hezbollah and so forth. All right, Steve, have we have we discharged our obligation to talk about things we know about? I mean, yeah. Should we say a, a very quick word about the the sort of the the big headline, but I think small cash out uh, press conference that uh, FBI Director Ray and DNI Ratcliffe and Assistant Director Chris Krebs had tonight, right before we went on the air. Is, is Ray that guy that the president doesn't like so much? <laughs> yeah, so there's also another another. You don't call these trial balloons. These these uh, threats to fire people. So the, it, there, there's a story. I think Spencer Ackerman was one of the was one of the reporters behind the story that that the president is dissatisfied with the FBI director and and here's the best part, Bobby. Are, are you sitting down? I am. He's also dissatisfied with Attorney General Barr. Um, and why is he dissatisfied with them, you might say? Um, because they haven't indicted Joe Biden, um, right? Or at least they haven't done enough in the president's view to to really expose the scandal-plagued uh, existence of the former vice president of the United States. Sigh, sigh. That's All I can it. say is if, if Bill Barr is not – if your if your henchman attorney general is not sufficiently henching for you, um, maybe it's you and not him at that point. <laughs> I I just – you know, I don't really have much to add. I think that this is a res ipsa locutor situation. The thing speaks for itself. Um, I just glanced over the Washington Post. The headline is Trump ways firing FBI director after election as frustration with Ray and Barr grows. Uh, yeah, you know, I actually think, you know, in the grant, of course, I'm sorry to see any sitting president, any president ever saying stuff like this because it's so freaking banana republic. But if this is, I think this sort of thing is helping for the fence sitters who are not sure, like really how, how problematic is the, you know, the president, it's just all talk. And he, he, he wants to fire the FBI director perhaps and the attorney general who's been his, you know, his strong right hand. He's been the hand of the king as it were, uh, because they won't move quicker with the election looming to pursue criminal charges against their opponent. I mean, this this ought to move some people who maybe aren't quite sure which way to go. I, I mean, if you're not, if you're still on the fence at this point, I feel like you know this is not the thing that's going to push you off of it, right? Because if you're still on the fence at this point, presumably it's because you think like a pox on both their houses, and I don't know, I I, I have a hard enough time understanding how anyone's still on the fence at this point. I do, I get it. I mean, obviously, I'm not on the fence, and I haven't, well, I never have been. I've been never Trump proudly <laughs> and proudly since 2015. Uh, so I don't sweat that, but I think I totally understand those who are who are really really concerned. They they want to vote on policy grounds, 
and they really don't want what they whatever it is they think they're going to get with Democrats. They, they really don't want that. It really deeply matters to them. And they have been trying to weigh that against the things that they can't, that, you know, there's some amount of cognitive bias that kicks in where you you don't perceive, you, you shunt away, excuse some things. The stuff that's really visible to them that's problematic about this person, Donald J. Trump, the stuff that's increasingly visible is the thing that's causing them to think like, good heavens, maybe this once they need to, to cross the aisle in that way. Um, and I do think that the, the spectacle of, of such naked uh, proposals to time something so that it would have electoral impact, I think could matter for, for a number of people. People of good heart and good intention who really are worried about the policy thing and haven't yet fully accepted the larger, actual, deeper policy stakes and problems of, of this, this, uh, this criminalized, corrupt approach to running the country. I, I guess I just, I guess I just chafe at the implication that it isn't already abundantly clear that this, that this election is not just about policy, right? Yeah, that it, that, be. it certainly right, should, right? That, that, like, yes, I understand that folks have substantive objections to some of the policies that they project and suspect that a president Biden might pursue. And if this were an ordinary election where it was just my policies against your policies, I would respect that. But but this is not an election about policy versus policy. This is an election about, you know, it, rule of law versus not rule of law. And I just, I you know. Yeah, my I, point I is I think a lot of people, just, they haven't framed it that way, but this is I the sort of thing that might help them perceive that frame. I guess it's just like of everything else that's happened. If this is like, it's just like, this is the thing that's pushing you. I mean, whatever, whatever. it takes, All right. whatever it takes. Well, amen to that. All right. So, so speaking of whatever it takes, um, should we, should we pivot to the, the frivolity, the promised frivolity? Cause you know, next week is the premiere of season two of the Mandalorian. So we got to get in our, our yes. really frivolous frivolity now. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, listeners make sure you're, you're up on, Mandalorian, because that will be our next homework assignment. But to last week, and 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 Sydney's going as the young. Uh, Sydney's going as the child for Halloween. Oh, <laughs> all right. What are you going as? I can't believe we even talked about this. Are you? Gonna I, I haven't. I, I'm going as a really tired dad who didn't have time to get a costume. Well, now that you wear that costume every day, are you? Pl- do you have any special like? So, so what is your social distancing trick-or-treat protocol? I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know if our listeners know that we live literally a block from each other. Um, yeah, and this, and, is a, this is a heavy, this is a big Halloween neighborhood for sure. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I expect that there will be some kind, like, I think some of the folks, especially on, I, I don't want to sort of out people, but you know, the block in our neighborhood that is a, especially a hotbed for Halloween. We I, have a destination just, block that people from yes. all over come in for. I, I suspect that that folks who live on that block may well just put out socially distanced candy, which you know, uh, as long as people are responsible, should be a nice way to do it. Well, there you go. The first teenagers to arrive, we're going to dump that big. <laughs> <laughs> hence, 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 why, hence, hence why we're going to go trick or treating at like four o'clock. Uh, smart. That's the way to do it. I, I think there will be a lot of like just like jugs of Purell. Not you got masks on anyways, and see if there's a way to do this safely. I think there's going to be a lot of that. Um, okay, uh, and if you're wondering, listeners. Uh, as every year, I'm wearing my referee shirt, but I can't blow the whistle since I have my mask on. Yeah, uh, seriously. Although uh, you, you need one of those electronic whistles. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, so you know what I've seen some of the some of some people have been doing. You get this like uh, like thing you can squeeze that the the whistle mm. fits into. You don't have to blow into it. The, the the pump makes the whistle. Anyways, what people really want to hear about is Tom Berenger. Tom, Tom Berenger. Let's start in on the optimistic note. What is the greatest Tom Berenger role. What what takes the top of the top of the program? well? I mean, you know, there is. I mean, there is. You know, Staff Sergeant Bob Barnes in Platoon, right? For which he was nominated for for, for which he was nominated for an Oscar. And and I think very rightly so. I think, oh yes. Although the makeup artist deserves a piece of that. Um, um, no doubt, but I mean, just the you know, it, it's hard to remember that Tom Berenger is an Oscar-nominated actor. <laughs> I, I love it, and and if, let me just say something about the so it was Sergeant, you know, Sergeant Barnes, right? Yeah. So the the whole dichotomy of Barnes and Elias, and the the angel and the devil, and the you know the the, the heights of empathy and the depths of of almost sociopathy, and and the best and worst of humankind in the midst of extreme circumstances. Um, Oliver Stone's movies mostly are, in my opinion, awful. And I think he's a 
seems to be a, somewhat of a crazy conspiracy theorist to put it mildly, but that movie is brilliant. And Berenger, I think every bit as much as William Defoe's offsetting role, those guys, that's the whole movie. That's the whole brilliance. Charlie Sheen's just the excuse for all of us to look through his eyelids and see what it all looks like. Um, all right. So speaking of Charlie Sheen, um, the, 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 the role, the role for which I, I will always, you know, most fondly think of Tom Berenger um, is Jake Taylor in Major League One, Major League Two. Um, yes, he's yeah, actually he's yes. kind of leading man, kind of Tom Berenger as as sort of the straight man amidst comedy, but also there's a certain pathos, some real pathos to that mm-hmm. character as the mm-hmm. over the hill guy. I like that the, the every man, you know, we are all Jake Taylor. Yeah. Um, um, and my then knees, my I, knees are certainly Jake Taylor's knees. That's for sure. Oh yes. And then it's actually, it's interesting to think of it like, you know, I am now older than Jake Taylor in major league. That's, you know, that's <laughs> your, your baseball career. Although actually I think you could probably make the Mets. I'm just saying. Ouch! Just ouch, bro. But by the way, sorry. Can, can we can we can we spare a minute to talk about the NFC East? Just because we. I mean, so. only, only after we quickly get some World Series, uh, at least rooting interest. Are you are you raised? Oh, or raise. You, yeah, raise. It's oh. a no brainer, right? Because it's, it's like no kind of story. Great organization. Yeah. Lower budget. I guess the Dodgers. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, the Dodgers. Yeah, hundred percent. Hundred percent with you. No, I'm, I'm just glad. I'm just glad that the that the Rays beat the Astros because Astros Dodgers would have been a very very hard World Series for me to get into. Oh my God, I would have loved to have seen that. But I'm I'm excited to root for the Rays and their fundamental, and it, but especially the organization how it's completed. and they're up in game two, by the way, as we sit here. Um, so so really quick, really quick um, NFL league. tangent. So I just I, so as of tonight, do you know what the NFC's the NFC teams have played? 18 games against non-NFC East opponents. Do you know what their record is? Oh, against the non-NFC East opponents? Is it non- like, is it they like played 18 games? non-divisional games. Yeah, They've only won two of them, right? Yes, they are 2-15-1. <laughs> Wait, who um, the two? So there was the Cowboys... There was that Cowboys crazy last minute comeback against yeah. the Falcons. Yeah, um, yeah. who, who and, had won a game at that point. Yes, and then who else did the... Who was the other win... I don't even know. The other well, one was also like a fluke. Um, yeah, the NFC so, is awful. And of course, the Cowboys had always had potential if they could just figure out a little bit of defensive stopping power. But good luck with that. That, that nightmarish injury to poor Dak Prescott, what a heartbreaking development. But wait, but here's the but so so but here's the thing. So so just two quick data points, because I find this hilarious as a Giants fan and as a fan of mediocrity. Um, <laughs> so the first is in all of NFC history, Bobby, the record for worst non-divisional record by a division was the 2008 um, NFC. I want to say South, and it was 10 and 30. Right? Do you know how much better the NFC East is going to have to start playing to get to 10 and 30? Yeah. Um, Ain't gonna happen. But here's the best part. So the Giants play the Eagles tomorrow night on Thursday night football. Um, the Giants, who were 0 and 5 about you know 72 hours ago, um, could be in first place by the end of this weekend at 2 and 5. Oh my god! Like uh, if no, if the Giants beat the Eagles and if the the artist formerly known as the Redskins beat the Cowboys, there will be a three way tie atop the NFC East at 2 and 5. Bobby, we could have a 6 and 10. Or even five and eleven division winner. I am rooting for that kind of hilarity. Oh my god, that is positively Mets level performance. Um, yes. it is. It is really something else to watch. But um, I guess it's I, actually it's actually not something else to watch. It's it's not watchable. <laughs> it's, it's a, I wish there was something else to watch. <laughs> um, so back, back yeah. to Tom Berenger. So okay. So here's the here. Yes, is Tom Berenger said that? So here's here's the Tom Berenger role that I struggle with. Um, General James Longstreet in Gettysburg. Yeah. Okay. So, um, stoically performed, woodenly performed. Sleepily I actually, performed. I actually think he's very good. I think the script just overdoes it. Like, I think you know the like Longstreet's reservations about the tactical strategy about the tactical about Lee's tactics at Gettysburg, right? Which are well known, well documented. There, you know, there's a reason why he's filed, right? Heavily litigated, right. Um I just feel like we're you know, it's rubbed in our faces, but like I actually think his performance as an actor 
is pretty darn good. Indeed, like it may, you know, I Jeff. I mean, I think Jeff Daniels really, you know, is the obvious leading man in the movie. Um, and I hate Chamberlain, right? He was Chamberlain, and I hate Martin Sheen as Lee, which they rectify, of course, in Gods and Generals. Um, but I, I don't know. I go back and forth about whether like Berenger is really good in Gettysburg or whether he's actually entirely mediocre. And I, I just, I, I don't know. It's hard to tell. It, you know, it's sort of interesting. Uh, this is a weird comparison, but I think about like Natalie Portman as Padme, mm. just this <laughs> widely, like viciously, incorrectly panned performance. Wait, but, wait, like, wait! You, you've gone to the, you've gone to the prequels. That that's how yeah. bad we're going. But I'm just wondering, like, how much is the fault of the actor? How much is the fault of the script and the direction? Yeah. Um, I know Natalie Portman's a, a fine actress, so how much of that was really not her fault? I suspect a lot. Um, and so by extension, extrapolating from that principle, uh, did, did Tom Berenger have like sort of constraints on what he was working with in Gettysburg? Uh, it's quite a fine movie though. And so, so our recommendation, I think out of this, if you let's, let's pivot to this. If you're going to recommend a Tom Berenger movie, not because it's Tom Berenger, but just out of our slate, it, if assuming no one's seen, our listeners haven't seen any of these, I, th- I think I'd say Gettysburg over major league. You have to you have to have a certain sophomore humor. Then again, if you're listening to us at this point in the show, I was going to say, I mean, you might like Major League. I, I mean, you know, Bob, I mean, just just Bob Euchre. I, I, Bob, you every line of Bob Euchre's in that movie is pure fucking gold, and it's just. So so let me throw in some other ones. I think I mentioned when we first brought this up that Shoot to Kill with Sidney Poitier yep. and Kirstie yep. Alley. I love that movie. I don't know why. Maybe it's just I was the right age. It was on HBO all the time or something. Christy Alley, there's someone who's not on the fence. So this movie, it's Tom Berenger and Christy Alley are like outdoors people in, I think they're in Oregon. Maybe it's Washington State, one or the other. Um, And she ends up getting kidnapped while out with a group out in the woods by an escaped, a guy who's escaped from jail, basically. And so Tom Berenger, the, 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 you know, hardy outdoorsman teams up with FBI agent Sidney Poitier, who is a very citified, you know, very like not outdoorsy guy. And so it's this classic buddy cop type story of, of first Sidney Poitier being in, in the environment he's not comfortable in, but later on it flips. Great film. Um, there's Rustler's Rhapsody for like, is that the worst or the oddest where he's like the leading man in a like weird sort of like, Airplane meets uh, Blazing Saddles kind of <laughs> dumb comedy from the era of all the brilliant dumb comedies from Hot Shots to Johnny Dangerously to, to um, well, there's so many of those. I don't think that's on any top five list, but that's just like an illustration of like the span of somebody's uh, career, I guess. Any other hated or at least weird Tom Berenger films that we should throw in the mix? I mean, he shows up in Inception. Um, right, as like the executive guy. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I, love, I do love Inception. Hey, by the way, uh, um, when is Tenet, the other uh, Christopher Nolan, the, the recent Christopher Nolan film, it went into theaters. When are they going to let us watch that at home? I can't wait to see um, I'm sure if you pay enough money to some service, you can probably watch yeah. it now. I'm not watching Mulan for whatever they were charging. I'm not paying for Tenet. Well, then then you're not asking when can you see it. You're asking when can I see it for free? And that's a different question. Not free. I pay my subscriptions to like all these different entities. Um, right. We're, we we're going to have some pretty good TV to talk about. We've got, you know, Mandalorian season two next week. We've got The Crown not far behind oh, it. Yeah. yeah. I got to catch up and finish off season two of that. Um, season two? Dude. That. We're up to season four. We're, this is going to be season five. Three, right, three, three. Um, you still need to watch Ted Lasso. It's good for your heart. I do have to watch Ted Lasso. It's so um, um, and, and 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 I guess tomorrow night I'm going to watch the Giants and the Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely watch your Ted Lasso. You're going to need it for that. It's very appropriate. <laughs> um, I'm in. Heather and I are watching uh, Shit's Creek. We're in season two. It's so awesome. Karen loves that show. It's just fun. It's just so fun. David Lee. Um, oh my god. Yeah, yeah I, you know, it's funny. I, I, Karen, the one place where Karen and my TV interests really diverge is like awkward humor. Um, if, if if you don't love the awkward humor, Creek yeah. is not for you. <laughs> That's, uh, um, we've been watching The Vow. Have you guys have you guys watched this? What's that about? This is um, this sort of docu the, the documentary series about um, uh, Nixium. 
um, you know, the, the sort of the creepy sex cult um, <laughs> in upstate New York. I did not know about this. It's yeah. a sex cult called Nixium. Mm. Is <laughs> okay. I'm so tempted to raise Giuliani again, but I'm not going I was to. Just, I was, I was, you know what? <laughs> My brain is always saying, "Don't, don't use this as an excuse to talk about Giuliani or Tubin. Don't use this as an excuse to talk about Giuliani or Tubin." That's right. That's right. We're just. I will just say that fine, we're done. Um, almost. I, I, I want to say one thing, um, which is. Um, there was a great story, I want to find it, in Wanquette yesterday um, by uh, Liz Dye, who's just hilarious. Um, and the second to last paragraph um, was this. Uh, Dahlia Lithwick and Maya Wiley and Leah Littman and Steve Vladek and Asher Nyapa and Renato Mariotta and Susan Hennessy and Ellie Mistal and Ryan Goodman exist, and they managed to remain fully clothed during meetings. Wait, <laughs> what was this? <laughs> this was this this was this was basically like no it is not like you know we oh, can get our yeah. legal commentary from people who are able to remain fully clothed but the only so thing i assumptions about you well so that's a thing so i appreciated the shout out i but i just want to say like uh i mean yes but but how does she know that i mean maybe you've been hacked <laughs> I'm sure I've been hacked. Um, oh, all right, man. on that on that creepy and and inappropriate note, um, he is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve <laughs> underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. I guess we should probably plan to do an episode next week, just in case it's like the last week that we have, yeah. you know, a democracy in this as, country. As things as now, we're going to be good, y'all. It's all going to be good. We're gonna we're gonna twenty twenty one is going to be a great year with vaccines and the rule of law and things you can be proud of, we're going to be all right. In case we're not, National Security Law Podcast will be broadcasting every night uh, until they come get I mean, basically. <laughs> no, is, that, is that episode title? This podcast is going to be all right until they come for us? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Uh, yeah, we'll be back as events warrant and uh, and as time permits and probably next week. And, and until we get sent to Gitmo. So uh, everybody stay safe out there. Please vote. And if you've already voted, please tell everyone else to vote and help them figure out how to do it. Oh, did you do a safe, stay uh, safe out there? Oh, stay safe out there. Adios. See, I can't say it if you don't say yours. <laughs>